we live in this age where we have so many of us could realize our dreams and that's a wonderful thing but the downside of it is that we can cling to that um, we can think that we and our desires are so powerful we can make them all take place <laughs> Um, but that does not always lead to inner peace and joy or really um, humility before God. So this um, learning to adapt, <laughs> I, I found it's hard. It's humbling. We have to, let, again, let go of what we think makes us happy, what we think we want something to look like. But it is, it can be freeing and very freeing and give a different uh, sense of joy. My name is Katie Walter Anthony and I am a research professor at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. Welcome to Language of God. I'm Colin Hugerwerf, the producer of the show and your host for this episode. Katie Walter-Anthony, our guest today, has done much of her science in a place that many of us have never been and will never see, in the remote Arctic regions of Alaska and Siberia. But that doesn't mean her research is totally unrelated to our lives. In fact, what she is learning has taught us a lot about the Earth's climate and how it has and will continue to change. Katie is someone, I think, who understands change, who has gone through a lot of change herself. And so she knows that change is not always easy. There can sometimes be a fine line, then, between accepting change and stepping in to try and steady things or even freeze them in place. Science can help us gain some of the knowledge that we need to know where that line is, and Katie's work is doing just that. We'll hear about the work, about the person behind the work, and talk about what it means for us and for our planet. Let's get to the conversation. Well, Dr. Katie Walter-Anthony, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. So we usually start our interviews by getting to know a person a bit, and I feel like I know you a bit already after reading your book, which <laughs> for the listeners is called Chasing Lakes, Love, Science, and the Secrets of the Arctic. But the listeners might not know you, and there are some things I don't know. So let's start with the science. It sounds like you were attracted to science from a pretty young age. What do you think it was that drew you to science and that way of thinking? From a really young age, I think it was just a love for being outdoors. Um, the peace and serenity and freedom that came from being away, out in nature, <laughs> away from uh, responsibilities and any emotions associated with culture. And I had an unstable home and childhood. Um, so it was just being out in the beauty of nature um, that first, I think, just gave me a love for the outdoors and for nature. And then as I went further, and I, you know, also a fear, I ended up uh, study, focusing on lakes. And sometimes the things that we're afraid of are actually the things we're most deeply interested in. So I was, you know, I'd be swimming and then my feet would touch plants growing underwater. And it always really scared me a lot. But then my master's degree focused on studying those plants. So um, then as I went through my college education, I was at a liberal arts college, Mount Holyoke College in Western Massachusetts. It's a women's college. I took all kinds of classes, not knowing for sure what I wanted to do in the future. And it became very clear that science was the right place for me because I, um, first of all, was interested in truth. And second of all, kind of, I liked the black and white. I liked the objective of um, putting out hypotheses and then falsifying them and really trying to understand the way the world works in a systematic way. And the social scientists, sciences at that time seemed less objective to me. Um, so I felt comfortable in science and it was a great way to ex yeah, explore and get to know the natural world more. So was college the first place where you kind of turned the interest in the outdoors into the kind of specifically scientific method of asking questions? <laughs> well, that's a great question. Um, it's the place where I had to I, identify myself because you have to declare a major. <laughs> um, I think growing up in the book, I talk about hiking with my dad in the Sierra Nevada mountains and just seeing these huge granite boulders that had were split in half and it looked like they'd been cut by a machete. Um, and just curious what, what could cause that? Why, why would a rock split that way? And, um, and he explained to me how when water drips into the cracks and freezes, it expands and just the power of that force of water um, turning into ice to split rocks. It was, it that was interesting. <laughs> um, 
so I think I probably always was again leaning towards how do things work but you don't I was not raised in an environment where I, I was surrounded by scientists or had opportunities for internships so I was not trained as a scientist until I started getting my formal education and went to graduate school. Yeah. Okay. So this is a podcast about science and faith. So before we get back to the science, which we will do, let's hear a little bit about the faith side. The religious background of your childhood sounds like it was a little bit complicated, different messages from different family members. Can you talk a little bit about that? Maybe your earliest impressions of religious life? Sure. Well, my... I was um, born in Texas, and my dad was serving in the army. So we were there for six months, and then moved to Germany, and back to Nevada, and to Oregon. And my parents had me at the age of twenty-one, um, and neither of them had a college education. So w- we ended up moving, I think, more than ten times in the first ten years of my life. Um, and they, my mother was raised in a Christian home, and my dad was not. But he became a Christian during the Jesus movement in the late 60s, um, 70s. And he became very passionate about his faith. Um, And so, I mean, he preached on the streets. I think he went to jail twice in Reno for for speaking out on the corner, out of place. Um, But then when we, at one point, we moved up to Eugene, Oregon, and joined kind of a commune. (laughs) People were building an orphanage, and it was some families that, collected dandelions and kind of lived off the land and um, didn't believe in any holidays, just read the Bible and lived a simple farm life. Um, And we eventually were asked to leave because my parents wanted to celebrate holidays. And in leaving, my dad started a degree at the University of Oregon in Eugene. And there, through his education and thinking um, and formative years, I suppose himself, in his early 20s, he fell away from faith and decided that Jesus was uh, a false prophet and did not fulfill his promises. So I was four or five. So early on, I was raised uh, learning how to read with the Bible. Um, And then at that younger age, I saw my dad fall away and my mom then become uncertain. And I got very mixed messages um, and even contradictory messages from both parents. And you look up to your parents. So when my dad called it, called Christianity a fairy tale, that sunk in. (laughs) Um, And yet I had been taught in the earliest ages, years that it was true. So I think that conflict really gave rise to a lot of deep seated doubts that then stuck with me um, as I was growing up. Yeah. So in the prologue to your book, you have this line where you say, as a scientist who wasn't convinced 20 years ago that climate change was immediately observable, and as a Christian who 20 years ago wasn't sure you believed in God, today you believe in both. Let's stick with the past here just a little bit longer, and you kind of hinted at some of this, but moving from that early childhood into your early formative years, what happened to bring you into this season where you start questioning your own faith, but also maybe still have some skepticism about the science too? Well, I, I think at the age I was questioning my faith, I again, I, I wasn't a trained scientist, uh, I, was, I was drawn to the natural world, but not a scientist. So uh, my parents married and divorced each other twice, mo- changed states all over the place. And at the a- age of 13, I was strong-willed and <laughs> arguing with my mother. Um, my dad was in a different state and it became clear that I didn't, I didn't, I had a feeling that to do well in the world and learn to survive, I needed to be on my own. So she let me move out <laughs> when I was 13 and I lived with another family um, they were Christian, but at that point I was kind of on my own and didn't have anyone of strong faith on a daily basis in any way mentoring me. So I started to be raised by the world. Um, and that gave, I went to Russia when I was 16 and that was right after the fall of the Soviet union. So I did take a Bible over with me. My grandpa handed it to me on the way when I was getting on the airplane. (laughs) And when I got there, I didn't know the language. And the, that post-Soviet world was so foreign that I did. I read my Bible a lot in that year, and I also ended up meeting some some Christian Russians um, that stuck out to me as very different than the rest of the Russians. So I, that year was important in terms of reading my Bible and having um, the example of those Russians that seemed like they had a certain light in them. But I came back to the States a year later, um, was on my own in Portland, Oregon, and just 
didn't know if it was true or not. Always had that that um, voice of my father echoing in my ear that it's a fairy tale and that I wasn't going to please him. It seemed like if I was going to believe in God. <laughs> so that was in some ways, that was my first experiment. It wasn't a true scientific. I don't know if it was a true scientific experiment, but I decided that if I don't know, I'm going to live like there is no God. And so that was the way I went off to college was deciding, I don't know. And I'm going to try to live just like there is no God and, and <laughs> did that for a long time. Um, and did not find that that led to any peace. I ended up in a lot of very hurtful relationships, hurt myself, hurt other people. Um, I did, yeah, I didn't, I didn't see, I tried to think that the world without God was a better place, but yeah, I just didn't have peace. And it took, it was a process of, um, coming back to faith and being willing to accept the Bible as true, even though it seemed like it co- contradicted so many other <laughs> ideas, uh, especially at a women, liberal women's college. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So, but, yeah. Uh, so bringing your story a little bit even more forward then, and I'll say you described this in much more detail in the book. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip some of that for time's sake, but eventually you find your way back to the church and Christianity, partly through, relationship with your husband and your family. But I, I got the impression that there was always some sort of draw back to spiritual for you throughout that time. Am I, am I right about that? There was. I, my, my re, when my research started picking up and taking off, I was in Siberia, again, alone. And I ran into trouble um, in, in my experiments. And I was alone and didn't have uh, anyone to easily solve problems for me. <laughs> and at one time I just I felt at the end of my wits and I prayed, even though I was not in the habit of doing that. And I would say something pretty close to a miracle happened. <laughs> um, and I, I still wasn't ready to believe in God, but that certainly kind of woke me up a little bit too. Um, but yes, there was a draw. My mom would over the years, I didn't talk to her very often, but when I did, she knew scripture and she would say certain Bible verses and I would give her the impression that I didn't want to hear it, but God's word is true and it cut, it's alive and it cut into me. So I think you're right that there was always in me still something that was um, hungry and receptive for God's word. The church didn't appeal to me. I didn't, the churches I visited, I didn't agree with their politics I didn't identify with the people that went there. Um, I did go to Siberia, a church in Siberia, and that was different. <laughs> they had okay. different politics, I suppose. <laughs> um, but it was God's word, really, that mm. ended up speaking truth. So I want to get to Russia in just a minute, but one more point on kind of on this train of thought. It, so I'm curious where you've kind of where you are now, and what. If there's any kind of tensions now with your scientific work, how you're received by your colleagues in the scientific community, any response to the book so far? Well, I did mail it out to a number of colleagues um, and was kind of nervous because I've always, I don't, I don't know that I had a reputation as being a Christian. Um, so this was a way of kind of coming out of the closet <laughs> that way. Um I've generally gotten the people that have come with big, warm hugs and said, I loved your book, have have been Christian people. Um, some colleagues have written back and said, wow, this is really interesting and not a negative response, but also not an um, exhilarated response. Some of the people I work closely with have that are not Christians um, have told me that they've really appreciated it and even felt some of my own struggles and questions that I raise mm. in the book they could identify with, too. Good. So, yeah, that's great. Well, let's talk a little bit about lakes. And I, w- I want to start by saying I share your love for lakes. I grew up in Michigan, just about a quarter mile from Lake Michigan, and spent most okay. of my childhood in and around lakes. We could hear the waves from our front door. And mm-hmm. so, reading, I could definitely relate to that draw to water. But it uh, it gets pretty cold in Michigan, but uh, not I think as cold as Siberia. And <laughs> I don't know much about <laughs> thermokarst lakes which is what you've been studying here for the past while, and specifically methane emissions from the bubbles in these lakes. So let's break this down a little bit and maybe first just um, say what a thermokarst lake is. So when you go north into the Arctic, the atmospheric temperature is so cold that the ground 
is frozen year round. In the summer, the surface soil thaws, and in the winter, it refreezes. But in the summer, if you were to take a sharp stick or a rod and poke it into the ground, you would go down a couple feet, and then it would hit something hard, and you'd think it's a rock, but actually it's frozen soil. So that permanently frozen ground we call permafrost, and it is both frozen soil, but in a lot of areas, it has massive wedges of ice, great big blocks of ice. And they have sort of a regular distribution in the ground. Um, so it, is, it, is that yeah. just groundwater that wasn't frozen at some period in history and froze? So during the, a lot of the ice in the places where I worked uh, formed during the last ice age. Okay. We still, even in the present climate, are in some places forming permafrost. Um, it tends to form during cooler climates. And it is what it, what it is, is that in the spring, in the winter, when the, it, the ground and air and ground are really cold, the ground cracks. And then in the spring and summer, when the snow melts and rain precipitation goes into the ground, it goes into those cracks and it reef and it freezes. And so it, you get these cracks that start getting layers and layers of ice that form year after year. And those are called ice wedges. And they're somewhat regularly distributed in the ground. So, and they end up, if you, know, if you have thousands of years, you can have these massive wedges of ice. And in some places in Siberia and in Alaska where I work, those ice wedges can go 80, up to 80 meters into the ground. 160 feet. So <laughs> that's, that's kind of the extreme of them. Um, but in a lot of places, they easily go three or four meters into the ground. So imagine massive blocks of ice that are going four meters into the ground all over the place. Well, if one of those ice wedges starts to melt, um, you get a little puddle. And that puddle absorbs the sunlight and it heats up and it causes more melting. And so that ice wedge just slowly melts, melts, melts until you have a pond and eventually that pond will thaw more of the ground around it and melt more of the ice wedges and the pond gets deeper and over time it gets wider. So the ice is melting, the land surface is subsiding, the sinkholes are filling with water and the part that was frozen soil f just falls into the bottom of the lake and it becomes food for microbes. And in Russian, the Russians call that process of the lake um, getting bigger. It's it, the Russians say that it's eating the soil around it. And I really love that picture because if we imagine that the lake is a gigantic gut <laughs> where you have microbes that can perform decomposition, just like in the rumen of a, of a cow, um, those microbes are digesting the soil organic matter, the remains of plants and animals that died in the past. And those, that organic carbon was frozen in soil for thousands of years. Now it's thawing out in the bottom of the lake and getting digested. And in that process, underwater, um, those microbes are generating methane and carbon dioxide, mm -hmm. which are greenhouse gases. And they bubble up to the surface and go into the air. Yeah, methane does. Carbon dioxide stays in solution, ah, and methane okay. come, is less soluble. So it comes out as bubbles. And it's the dominant way that methane comes out of these lakes. So my job as a, my, my first... Um, my PhD work was was to understand how much of this methane gas bubbling from permafrost thaw is happening in Siberian lakes. Yeah, so so this is in Chersky. This is in Chersky. Okay. It was a gulag territory. Um, we're just full of prison camps uh -huh. during the Soviet period. So a lot of times on my way there, I would tell Russians that I was going to the Kalima, the Kalima River region. And they were horrified. <laughs> Why would you want to go there? <laughs> yeah. So then explain a little bit about the, uh, this was your PhD project. Is that, is that right? With Sergey? Yep. This was my PhD project. Uh, I, there, I went over to uh, the far northeast part of Russia and a, a Russian scientist named Sergey Zimov had built a little science station. So he had a laboratory and uh, there were four houses. Two of them were occupied by Russian Russian families, his family and another Russian family. One of the houses was empty um, from a different Russian family that couldn't tolerate working with Sergei any longer. <laughs> and then the fourth house was um, open for me and then other visiting scientists that would come. Yeah. Okay. And then explain the, pr the project that kind of launched 
the the book at least and some of your... sure yeah so when I arrived I I was new to this landscape and I was told that my job was to quantify these methane bubbles so to do that I built bubble traps um, which were ended up being these they were these plastic skirts and I put a metal ring around the bottom so it's kind of like a hoop skirt dress uh, but at the top of that funnel a skirt funnel, I put a, an inverted plastic bottle. So I found plastic beer bottles or drinking water bottles that people had discarded along the roads around Chersky, um, turned those up bottles upside down, taped them onto this plastic skirt, this funnel, and then lowered them into the water in the lakes, hoping that they would capture any bubbles that were coming up. And I made, um, over time, I made hundreds of these. And Went, rode, put them out in the lakes, and then I rode out around in my rowboat every day, pulling them up to see if I'd caught any bubbles. <laughs> Later, someone helped me, and they said, I like this. It's kind of like trapping animals, but I said I was tr- trying to trap bubbles. Um, and my first two years uh, was just failure after failure, and I built more traps and continued to fail. <laughs> so. Yeah. So one of the aspects I found really compelling in this story is just the persistence and the creativity it took to do a lot of this. Yeah. Like you said, you're creating these pieces of scientific equipment out of like recycled materials from junk piles. And so we've been working on some stories on the podcast about the nature of science. And I think this really exemplifies how scientific discovery doesn't take the like the normal route. Just talk. Can you talk a little bit more about the points on that journey that like made you doubt the whole process? Well, when I was out rowing around in my boat, I could see that the lake was bubbling. And anyone who has stood next to a lake on a calm day probably has seen some bubbles coming up. So I knew that the bubbles existed. Mm-hmm. I just wasn't sure why they weren't going into my traps. Um, so I thought I'd build more. <laughs> and and that didn't solve it. What ended, and then what the, the, the part that seemed like there was a, the hand of God played a role was that at one point I just, my trap started getting attacked by muskrats. They were chewing holes in them, bite, biting the bottles, um, destroying them faster than I could make them. So I, I actually stopped, almost stopped sleeping entirely, stayed up all night, building more traps, putting them out the next day, um, day after day of that. And the muskrats were winning. Um, so ultimately what happened is that I stuck a lot of scientists in the Arctic, at least historically. I think now people are recognizing that winter is important. <laughs> so more people are studying the Arctic in winter. But historically, people would do their field work in the summer and then go back to their universities and laboratories and work indoors in the winter. Well, one in my second year, I stuck out, I st- stayed in Siberia longer until the lakes froze. And I went out onto the ice with Sergei one morning and it hadn't snowed yet. So the this just thin layer of ice covered mm. the lake. And he said, um, he said, be careful. The ice will tell you if it's going to break. <laughs> um, but it was cracking with every step that I took. But I got, as soon as I overcame my fears, I realized I had an epiphany of what exactly was going on. I could see these white, beautiful white patches of bubbles in the ice. Um, and they were kind of like, if you look up at the night sky and look at stars, there's, patches of stars but the most of the sky is black and that's how the lake was most of the lake was this black clear black ice and i realized with all my traps out there my chances of capturing a star or capturing a bubble point were low but there were plenty of those bubbling points around they just didn't take up very much space and they were scattered so it was um that was also the same day sergey showed me this the first time he 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 gave me an ice spear and he was a smoker, so he had his matches in his pocket. And he told me to, Katya, spear into that ice bubble. And then he lit a match. He said, but be, be careful, Katya. The first time I ever did this, I burned my whole vegetation. <laughs> he was talking about his facial hair. Because methane is a, it's a natural gas and it's flammable. So when we poked into that bubble, the methane came rushing out. And when you light that bubble on fire, a big fireball goes up. And it can mm-hmm. definitely... Um, envelop you if you, if you point the spear in the wrong direction. Hmm. So what were the conclusions from that research? What, and what were the implications kind of more widely? Well, really important ones. Um, 
I, the, the, the training I had had up until that point as a scientist said, always randomize your experiments. And so I thought putting my bubble traps out randomly in the lake, I was going to capture nature. Well, I captured the background of nature, but I missed all those stars. I miss all those really points of bubbling, those hotspot points. So I realized instead I needed to actually count how many bubbles were in the lake and I needed to put my bubble traps over those bubbling points and understand how many bubbling points there were per square meter so that I could more accurately come up with an estimate of methane bubbling. And, and so I did that. I redesigned my experiments and I ended up finding that these Siberian lakes were emitting five times more methane than people had thought before. Um, I collected some of those bubbles into little glass bottles. And so my, they had a stopper on top. So I was holding a glass bottle in my hand with a stopper and inside were methane bubbles. And we always talk about with carbon dioxide and methane, we talk about these gigatons of carbon in the atmosphere that cause climate warming. Well, in my bottle, I had um, some milligrams of, of carbon in the form of methane. But it just felt like a bottle and it was clear and it, you, methane's odorless and it's transparent. Um, but it wasn't until I took that bottle back to the laboratory in the U.S. And, and methane is a carbon with four hydrogens. So when I stripped off the four hydrogens in the laboratory, I was left with the very carbon atoms that had been in, on the methane molecules in the lake, in the bubbles. And I could hold that, those carbon atoms in my hand because they were graphite. If you take the hydrogens off, you get it converts um, that carbon just takes the form of graphite. And so that was really neat to that was kind of seeing is believing. Um, I believed there were methane bubbles in my bottle and they had some mass, but I couldn't really detect it with my senses. But then when I underwent that laboratory method, a procedure of taking the hydrogens off and being left with pure carbon, I was then holding and could see in my hand a little piece of graphite. Um, but you can radiocarbon date that graphite. And so I did that. And what I saw was that the age of the carbon on the methane gas, these greenhouse gas molecules, the age of the carbon was the same age as the mammoths and the grasses that the mammoths had been eating during the ice age. So it showed that there was this tremendous amount of bubbling coming out of the lakes and the, the bubbling was coming from the thawing of this ice age um, frozen ecosystem that was thawing out in the lake bottoms and getting converted into methane and CO2 entering the atmosphere. So if you take old carbon and you put it in the atmosphere, um, just it's, it's another version of human fossil fuel emissions. By adding greenhouse gases, it traps incoming solar radiation and in this case could cause more warming and more thaw of permafrost and more methane gas release. So it was a positive feedback cycle. Hi, listeners. On this podcast, we hear a lot of stories of young people who consider leaving the church because of the tensions they find between science and faith. It doesn't have to be that way. That's why we developed Integrate, a teaching resource designed for classroom teachers and home educators. It seeks to equip the next generation of Christian leaders to be faithful, informed, and gracious voices engaging with the hard questions raised by science. To learn more, just go to biologos.org integrate. All right, back to the conversation. So methane has always felt like it takes a backseat to carbon when people talk about climate change. And there's good reasons for that, right? There's just less of it, but it's, it's super potent. Why don't we hear as much about methane as we do about carbon? As, as we do about carbon dioxide, Car- yes, um, right. I think, well, I think you're, you're right. There's just so much more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and emitted by people. Um, every molecule of methane is equ- on a hundred year time scale is equivalent to 30 molecules of carbon dioxide. So for every one methane, you get 30 carbon dioxides um, on a 20 year time cycle. So shorter time period, methane's even has an even stronger global warming potential. Um, it's more like equivalent to 80 carbon dioxides. So, and maybe it's because I study methane that I, <laughs> I actually hear and think more about methane than carbon dioxide. <laughs> um, but you're right in the big picture, the CO2 is just so much more abundant um, and emitted more by people. However, people, I think people do care about methane. It comes from 
um, our landfills, all the places where we're depositing garbage, if it, those environments go anoxic and without without oxygen, um, methane gets generated by microbes in landfills. Then all the ruminant animal husbandry is another what we call human source of, of methane. Um, the fossil fuel industry itself uh, in producing natural gas, there's lots of leaks that there's methane release from that. Um, and then we have natural sources, which are wetlands um, all around the globe. The lakes are important. Um, actually, termites. <laughs> that that hmm, mm-hmm. Termites are an important source. Um, so we have a lot of both natural and human sources. And if we can reduce our emissions of those, it goes a long way hmm. in terms of the, the, uh, yeah. mitigating climate change. So for the thermokarst lakes... Um, is the the methane release from this ancient carbon is is that something that's happening because the climate is warming, or is that something that's kind of happening at a at a continuous rate um, in Earth's history? That is a really good question. Um, so when I started studying these lakes back in 2000, so 22 years ago, um, all the projects I was part of and even grants I got funded were all under the umbrella of climate warming causes permafrost to thaw, which should release more of this methane. But I didn't have enough experience yet to know, and I don't think anybody even knew scientifically was the formation of these lakes accelerating or is it something that's always gone on and it's just natural? So we started um, traveling all over Siberia and figuring out the birth dates of these lakes. So I would travel through along the rivers and the rivers would often cut through the lakes and cross section and drain them. So I could, I could sample the sediments of these ancient lake profiles, radiocarbonate the sediments and figure out the birthday of the lakes And then people had done some um, dating of thermokarst lakes in other parts of Canada and Alaska. So I I compiled as many birthdays of lakes as I could find and plotted them. And what that data set showed is that when the earth first came out of the ice age during the last deglaciation, that more of these thermokarst lakes formed then. It was a faster rate of formation and actually released more methane then than what we were seeing now or what we were seeing 20 years ago. (laughs) Um, And that was because when, when the earth first really shifted through that abrupt climate change from a cold ice age into the um, more moderate interglacial period, the landscape was just ready for this. There was lots of ice in the ground, a ton of carbon. And for when these lakes first formed, they got huge. Over time, those lakes will drain And so when a lake forms, it actually collapses the ground. So instead of this ice-rich, uniform um, level of of landscape full of carbon, over time, these lakes make a bunch of pockmarks all over the ground. So later lakes that formed couldn't get as big. Um, And then the earth got cooler. So the rate of lake formation slowed down. During my career, um, as I said, I was always writing these grants and fellowships to get funding under the argument that these lakes were a contributor to climate warming and really important. But did I actually see them getting bigger? Did I actually see them accelerating? I was not convinced of that. But that has changed in the last six to six to eight years. The lakes that I studied for a long time and just thought, well, they're kind of, this looks pretty normal, no longer look normal. Hmm. Um, they, little ponds have just got turned into huge lakes before my very eyes. And a lot more have formed. And when we've put them against um, climate data sets, we see that around Fairbanks, Alaska, where I live, um, just a, a 40% increase in lake area since the 1980s a- associated with warming that started then. So I think we are at uh, a threshold, a really interesting time to, uh, with the opportunity to see whether these models are right or wrong. Um, and so far, they're in terms of what I study, they look like they might be right. Hmm, okay. <laughs> um, that climate warming is creating more of these lakes and an acceleration of them, which means an acceleration of that methane release. Hmm. Yeah, and I feel like one of the uh, tricky parts, especially for communicating the science of climate change, is 
differentiating between natu- natural climate cycles and human-induced change, but and it's really not even that simple, right? Um, there can be something that is that is a natural change that starts to increase or decrease and cause feedback, and it's it's just really complicated to communicate. Um, so, with with these lakes. Do are we starting to get a sense of what this means for the future of our climate, and, and what, how much of a role specifically the lakes play? Yeah, and I, I like how you started that out. Um, when when we figured out what the birth dates were of all these lakes back through time, we saw that a lot formed right as the Earth emerged from the ice age, and then the formation of the lakes slowed down. But another thing that we saw was that the lakes filled up with peat over time. Even when there was water and then when the lakes drained, they, they accumulated peat. So thick beds of peat um, built, built up. And that peat was soaking up carbon out of the atmosphere. So the significance of the timing of these lakes is that when they first form, they emit greenhouse gases a lot of them, and they emit this old carbon. So they cause a a positive feedback to climate warming. But over time, as a lake gets older and then drains, it switches roles and it takes up carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and it causes climate cooling. So we're trying to put all of that together. (laughs) Um, And what we learned is that today, the lakes all together have a net cooling effect. Um, But if we're at this threshold of widespread permafrost thaw. And then what would happen is as all that peat formed, it would refreeze, it would become permafrost again, and become isolated from the atmosphere. But now as permafrost is thawing and accelerating, we no longer have that natural protection um, of locking carbon away from the atmosphere by freezing it. Now the freezer door is opening, and it will all be subject to microbial decomposition. So you know, we have observations of how much of this has gone on in the last 60 years, because that's where our satellite records go back to. Um, but then for the future, we have only models. Um, so the model projections are that with climate warming this century, even it, there's the business as usual scenario, RCP 8.5, and then there's a more mitigating scenario, RCP 4.5. Both of those scenarios are enough to open the freezer door and subject vast amounts of permafrost carbon to decomposition and methane production. Um, The business as usual thaws it faster than the RCP 4.5, but both will open the freezer door. And there's a limited amount of carbon in the freezer. So if you open the freezer door, the amount of greenhouse gas you can generate um, is not terribly variable. Certainly the conditions, whether it's aerobic or anaerobic, will govern if it goes out, comes out of the ground as methane or CO2. Um, so that, that's an important thing that we need to get a better handle on. But So if, if looking at the future, um, permafrost today contains twice as much carbon as the atmosphere. So if we <laughs> flash thawed all of that permafrost and released it all to the atmosphere, it would triple current um, atmospheric carbon dioxide levels. But it doesn't flash freeze and it doesn't all get released at once. And a large amount comes out as, as methane. Um, so we really have to understand um, the controls over that. But even saying all of that, um, this natural methane source and, and carbon dioxide source from permafrost only comes up to about 10% of, of what the projected human fossil fuel emissions are. So okay. Okay. it's dwarfed by, <laughs> but, but it's, you know, sure. it's a headwind against efforts to mitigate. Right. So there's a couple of sentences in the epilogue for your book that I want to talk about because I I think it brings up some really interesting conversation, get some of the nuances of our climate situation and what we can do about it. So I'm just, I'm going to read a, a quote here. Uh, you say, as I look at the changes taking place around us now in the Arctic, and you, you list a bunch of changes we've probably all heard, uh, there's a temptation to join the cry of some people to take a stand to prevent these changes on Earth. There's a tendency for all of us to want to keep things the way we remember them. There's a deep desire to keep the Arctic in all of its beauty and splendor that indigenous knowledge and Western science have revealed to us during the past 150 years the same. But the Arctic changed to become how it is today, and change will continue to happen. 
We're well on our way to an Arctic that will be at least 7 degrees warmer by the end of this century. We can hope and strive to slow this warming, but change itself is unpreventable. Change has always happened. So I think this is really interesting. You're not saying here that we should just not worry about it, that there's no problem, just more change, just continue doing what you're doing, right? (laughs) No, no, I'm not saying that. But I, I think we should have a, I went into ecology as a graduate student in the field of restoration ecology. Um, What are we going to restore now with all these much more years of experience behind me? What are we going to restore it to? Um, Mm -hmm. I love pristine natural systems (laughs) (laughs) and cotton, you know, conservation. I, I love that. But we also live on the planet and they're, and we have to be realistic. And so I think we need to ask ourselves, um, at what point are we trying to preserve everything to change actually does always happen. It always has. So the real question is how can we live with ourselves in a way that we're taking care of our home and not causing these changes to happen faster than people and animals can adapt to them. So that means a lot of different things, but I think it can hurt us to, look for really dramatic ways to just stop everything and keep something, um, pin it to a certain point in time and state of being, because that's just not natural. But really, we need to understand how the system works. And then most, so I I think we should put a ton of energy into our relationship with the place where we live. Um, We can take care of things better if we understand it, if we know it, if we care about it and love it. So people spending time outdoors, um, And being able to observe for yourself so you don't have to hear somebody else tell you that this is how you take care of it, (laughs) if you know. (laughs) Right. Um, And then I I guess I was thinking today on my run that a lot of times, you know, if if we want to even improve our own quality of life, which can be a self, you could say that's a selfish aspiration. I think ultimately that also ends up... um, improving the world and the environment that we're living in. So if, if we can do a little less of the driving around and eating out and being consumers that generate a lot of garbage and instead slow down and prioritize um, having more home, more meals at home with family members, all of that is going to be <laughs> better for our well-being as people and also better for the environment. So I think investing, slowing down and investing more in um, getting to know the people around us and taking care of them and also getting spending a lot of time outdoors to, to see and observe and understand how things work. And that way, uh, whether consciously or unconsciously, the decisions that we make are going to value um, our natural world more, which should result in taking better care of it. Hmm. So... So there are things we can change, and I think some of those things we'll know by doing what you say, changing our own lifestyle choices. There are other things we can change, like through geoengineering. Have you thought about like do how much how much do we have to change to be able to keep <laughs> things slow enough for us to be able to adapt? Can yeah, well. Yeah. Even with um, health, I'm definitely more on the side of prevention instead of taking medicines to solve problems that we mm-hmm. could have prevented. Mm-hmm. So I would prefer the natural way of preventing <laughs> as much these problems instead of the geoengineering approach to to try and solve them. Because time, we don't understand the system well enough. And time and again, you know, we bring in these invasive species that cause great problems. And then we're stuck with um, not so great solutions to get rid of them. <laughs> and, and we end up generating a lot of times generating more problems than what we started out with. So yeah, I, I guess um, I'm open to thinking about the geoengineering ideas. And, you know, one of them I'm involved with talking to people now about can't, can we promote methane oxidation in the lakes? Is there a way to promote microbes that would be consuming and eating the methane and converting it into carbon dioxide? So, you know, that's something worth considering. Um, But I would want to see the experiments done to make sure that we're not 
that there are not going to be side effects that we didn't anticipate that actually end up harming the system worse. Yeah. I And I really resonate with, with the idea that that change is going to happen. And, and if we don't think about adaptation, we're just going to kind of waste our time trying to change things that we can't. I, I'm curious if you have any examples of like what what adaptation looks like from your own life that that will help us to you say you say somewhere in your book um, that we can adapt and look for ways to help make the changes positive. <laughs> yeah, and in my book, um, and I would need to think a little bit about the practical, tangible changes, um, which I I would need a few minutes to think about that. In the book, what what that the way that that takes place is that I married I married a Midwestern farmer, which took me out of the Arctic, and the academic uh, environment that I loved the adventure of doing science all around in extreme environments. Um, and I was kind of got stuck <laughs> on this Midwestern farm and that w- led to a lot of depression and it was difficult to take. So I, over time w- had to decide, was I going to let that ruin me, take away my joy, take away the joy of my husband and then children that came into the scene or was I going to adapt to this change? Um, and that to do so required letting go of my pride, letting go of the idea that I am only happy if my world looks a certain way. Um, and that was that whole journey was ended up being a spiritual one. Um, but I found that it is possible that I needed to change the lenses at what at which I through which I was looking at the world around me and look for the opportunities. You know, we live in an age, I grew up, uh, my motto, I think in first grade was where there's a will, there's a way. And we live in this age where we have so many of us could realize our dreams. And that's a wonderful thing. But the downside of it is that we can cling to that. Um, We can think that we and our desires are so powerful, we can make them all take place. (laughs) Um, But that does not always lead to inner peace and joy, or really um, humility before God. So this um, learning to adapt, <laughs> I, I found it's hard. It's humbling. We have to, let, again, let go of what we think makes us happy, what we think we want something to look like. Um, but it is, it can be freeing and very freeing and give a different uh, sense of joy. So I think in the same way, um, I mean, am I, ha- so just taking me back to permafrost and in, in Alaska, do I love it that the road and the ski trails and the trails I hike on that used to be dry are now you have, you can't get across them without hip waders on because they are these great big sinkholes filling in um, mud with mud and permafrost. Thaw. Trees are collapsing into them. Um, <laughs> you know, we have, I think we're, yeah, we have, this is, this changes are taking place and we have to learn to adapt to them. Hmm. Is there any, do you, what do you say to those who will be worried about defeatism that, that might come from that idea? I, and I, I think, I think the answer is adaptation is not defeatism, but yeah, I'll let you. Well, I mean, I think one of the, one of the lakes I work at has a house on it and the man who lives there built that house. He loves it. It's his little cabin. Well, over time, the ice melted beneath it and the walls ripped apart and it became unsafe. So his mother died and he had to spend his only inheritance to build a new house um, further away from the lake, which is constantly eating and growing and taking in everything it can get. So that was a big that was emotionally difficult for him. Um, And and he wanted to (laughs) he wanted he was trying to get insurance coverage because of climate change taking his house. Um, now years have passed and he has a beautiful new home. So, you know, I, I think, it, and it's a, it's a better energy, more energy efficient home than what he started out with. So I think, yeah, all, all of us in our lives, change is taking place, even things not related to climate. And it's hard for us to, sometimes to, to roll with those changes. But if we can allow ourselves to be flexible and look at the bright side, uh, th- there's a lot of brightness to be had. Yeah, that's good. We're uh, coming up to the end of our time here. What are you working on now? 
Well, it's uh, a little bit of a secret. <laughs> um, I am looking at um, methane associated with permafrost thaw coming out of some places where we never thought to look before. Hmm. Um, and, you know, if we talk again in a month or a couple months, I might have that paper ready. But Oh, good. All right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll keep our eyes out for that. Um, All right. <laughs> we've, we've been ending our interviews by asking our guests what books they've been reading. So I want to ask you that and uh-huh. maybe specifically if there's anything on the kind of the realm of this conversation about climate and environment. But I'll, if, if, if there's anything you're reading that you'd want to tell us about, we'd love to hear it. Well, I just finished um, reading, and I don't remember the author's name because I don't pay a lot of attention to that as much as I should. Um, I just finished reading the biography of Catherine the Great, which was ah. fascinating. Uh, I had started it before the the war um, started, so it was. It's been really interesting to read that book um, with the changes that are taking place now between Russia and Ukraine, and mm. and the history of. A Potomkin, um, one of Catherine's lovers who had gone down and fought the Turks for <laughs> the Ukraine region um, and then developed it for Russia. So, yeah, that's been very interesting. Um, and I just started a new biography on William Wilberforce. Ah, we homeschool our children. So ah, yes. uh, between that and doing science, trying to keep up with my university work and being a good mother... Um, I don't have as much time to read as I'd like to, but yep. a lot yep. of it is actually reading to them. Ah, and we've yep. just, uh, we read The Black Arrow by Robert Louis Stevenson, which was great, very old uh, English style of writing, and are just now finishing Robin Hood. Oh, the original great. Book. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, Katie. This has been really enjoyable. And thanks for telling your story and Chasing Lakes. I recommend the book and hope we can talk again sometime. Thank you, Colin. Language of God is produced by BioLogos. It has been funded in part by the Fetzer Institute, the John Templeton Foundation, and by individual donors who contribute to BioLogos. Language of God is produced and mixed by Colin Hugerworth. That's me. Nate Mulder is our assistant producer. Our theme song is by Breakmaster Cylinder. BioLogos offices are located in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in the Grand River watershed. If you have questions or want to join in a conversation about this episode, find a link in the show notes for the BioLogos forum or visit our website, biologos.org, where you'll find articles, videos, and other resources on faith and science. Thanks for listening.